0: As I move along here 12 years in on my program, uh, it is essential uh, to use new media uh, to connect with cats all over the world, all over the globe, who have a desire to create authentic spiritual music with their peers and elders on the bandstand. so much of what happens in the United States, and I'm just as much of a, just as guilty as anybody else, but you sort of begin to think that everything revolves around the 50 states here um, in the United States as it relates to the cats and the musicians. uh, Once you get on new media and you catch somebody's attention, maybe you catch a gaze or someone's eye, all of a sudden you're like, oh, who's that cat? And then you're looking over and they're in some other part of the world swinging a band. And you realize that uh, we all really are one human race. We are all connected. uh, And uh, in a lot of ways, even though a lot of people might not understand this uh, rhythm, and, uh, and music um, is really the, the greatest healing force in the world. And uh, obviously outside of certain laws, uh, if we had more appreciation for the cats, more musicians being compensated for doing original art, uh, we'd probably be in a lot more elevated place today. And the uh, overall universal vibration would be much higher. I get a chance today to speak to an amazing rhythmist, Great drummer, someone who's always seeking and searching. Snor Kirk, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show.
1: Thank you so much, man. So happy. So happy to be here.
0: That's great to have you, brother. You know, can you talk a little bit about um you know, in this country, me and you could walk in the United States, we could walk down the street and ask twenty people uh what the definition what their definition of the word jazz is and we'd get twenty different answers. Um because it's been so contorted uh yeah you know just sort of things move on but in general where you grew up can you talk about what jazz meant not just to you but sort of the uh the musical community
1: uh, ab- absolutely uh pro- probably 20 to a thousand different things as well uh <laughs> at, at that time i guess but i mean I've, i grew up in uh, in rural norway actually uh in in pretty small place um and i would i would say that the and this was in the in the 90s so i would guess that the in a way that the stuff you would hear locally would be either traditional new orleans uh jazz sure and then there was also a lot of 90s fusion uh you know like the the post like the whole Pandemic following the chicory Electric Band, that kind of thing. I think <laughs> so for... You
0: would, you would, they would just go. They would buy it, but they would go straight from sort of Dixieland, New Orleans, straight through to '90s fusion with nothing in between.
1: <laughs> no, I think those were probably the most dominant. most played. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. most I played did. music, you know, and every everything else was. Uh, you had to dig for that in that, uh, that part of the world at that time, at least. Uh, but, but I would say. Generally, I think people would would uh, if you ask them what is jazz, they would probably go for something slightly older, slightly more traditional. At that point, at least.
0: I dig. Well, can you talk about a story about when you went on any particular rabbit hole dig where you just you know because like that to me is so. Um, I mean, I was in, I was essentially an '80s and '90s kid myself, but and I wasn't full bore into music the way I am now, but can only imagine what it must have been like when you say you had to seek. Can you talk about a specific? Uh, maybe you weren't even trying to seek, but you just sort of ran uh, into something that uh, was not getting a lot of radio play and just sort of blew your mind open.
1: Well, I was I was really spoiled to be honest, because both both of my parents are musicians, uh, classically trained, and uh, but they had a really Broad musical taste and a vast musical collection, um, and they would just—I mean, even just from a, as a small, small kid just growing up—they would expose me to all kinds of music, you know, which I, I never considered it to be, you know, either advanced or hard. It was like I had certain albums, and if I was building, you know, Lego bricks, then I I needed this album because <laughs> I like, for that. And that, and that, that is
0: me. No, Tell me what <laughs> album. Do you remember what like it, there was a certain pairing between what you were doing and then the album you would put on?
1: Absolutely, and that was uh, for for the Lego. That was uh, Carmen, the classical. Uh, wow, black, you know, cause that, that, that I was a lot into the you know the Lego pieces with the knights and uh, oh those, no, absolutely, well, more stuff, cerebral the medieval stuff. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I dig, I dig. So it it really worked for that, and then I uh, also has some other favorites I remember from from being. Way back from when I was four or five, I was like I, I love the West Side Story album. Remember that,
0: Leonard Bernstein, uh, right?
1: Exactly. So yeah, it, it man, that's very,
0: iconic. Yeah,
1: very diverse in in that way. And they they would keep doing that all through my childhood. And eventually, and pretty early, I just got completely you know, yeah, rabbit hole is the is the right word. And uh, and uh, I was you know the classic liner note kid. I wanted to know everything. Who mastered mm. this? who's playing on it why does this sound like this and that so yeah (laughs) i started early
0: when they when your folks were classical musicians because that's what allowed them to pay the bills or would they have or yeah i mean they obviously had broad musical taste but did they actually um were they were they content or were they at peace playing My contention is, and again, I'm not a musician, uh, but I just feel there's a lot of cats that are, it doesn't have to be classical music, but for this, the point of this discussion, let's just say that I feel like there's a lot of musicians who play classical music for a living and they have a large palate and a large, broad taste of music. Um, But, you know, it's just so hard to make a living playing original, creative, spiritual music. So they wind up, having to basically take cues from a conductor their whole life and they're kind of unsatisfied so while they might be making a good living they're not really at peace where did your parents come down on the whole thing
1: um somewhere in the middle i would guess <laughs> uh, I, I mean this was this was also in uh, i mean in, in the 90s it's like the 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 absolute peak of uh, you know the 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 picture perfect socialist scandinavian uh dream in a way. So, so, uh, my, uh, my father, when, when, uh, when I was born and my sister, I have a younger sister, when we were born, he decided to be a, a stay at home dad, just to, to make sure, you know, uh, that we had that kind of upbringing and, and, uh, which, and, and because of how the country at least worked at that point, uh, it was possible for, for my mother to, to support a whole family from, just from playing and, and teaching uh and i'm i'm pretty sure that she would also have loved to have more to have had more creative freedom and to have done um other stuff as well you know besides being in an orchestra or teaching at schools but but uh, but overall i think the 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 situation as a whole was uh, was good for everybody
0: can you i mean that's so beautiful because for my second daughter i i i actually left my gig as a teacher and stayed home with her for a couple of years. And it was like, can you just talk about how meaningful looking back on it, how important it was to um, be able to have a parent, most importantly, a, a father figure in the home growing up I to me, like there's just so much uh, demand in this country for success and we- that means wealth. And that means, you know, slaving away and being away, away from your family and, uh, you know, there's no stay at home. I mean, it's becoming more common, but I just feel that, you know, it's so important. I just would love you to talk about the impact that having a a present male role model in your childhood years meant.
1: I mean, I mean, to, to me and to my, to my sisters, well, we, well, first of all, we, we didn't know any other, you know, truth sure, so sure, so uh, but but in retrospect it's it was amazing and also even in from a i mean from a scandinavian uh perspective that was something that was possible then i'm not sure it would be possible to do that now in the same way because everything's as it has globally you know like if everything's so expensive t- taking yeah. a toll it's gotten more expensive oh, definitely, um, yeah. so that was also a I don't know we were really lucky to to hit that point in time where that was actually an an option to have that and and looking back on it now and and for myself too i have i have children too you know and and often have to uh to be away from them too and and uh, yeah i i really wish i could could do the same thing
0: talking to Snor kirk here on the jake feinberg show um so uh can you you know there's a couple like can you just talk a little bit about you know the where you sort of decided to um, basically go out and maybe take a chance on playing music that may not be commercially viable, but it was the only thing that fed you spiritually you know when I listen back to like uh so many of the records that I love, um, done by black musicians. And, um, you know, you listen to like a Hampton Hawes album or like even in the studio, uh, those guys were like playing as if their life depended on it. They certainly weren't getting paid a lot, but the music feels so real and authentic because they were basically playing like, you know, they were going and maybe doing one or two takes, but essentially just playing, in my mind, what jazz is, which is just a more of, about feeling and emotion. Obviously, you've got to play through changes and melodies and harmonies, but did you get to a certain point in your life where it was about playing music that felt good, uh, even if it wasn't about, and maybe even now, do you still offset Ways of making money by playing the music that you truly love.
1: That's a, that's a great great question. And yeah, I mean, for me, I, I've I would say, I mean, we all, I think, or at least I can speak for myself, I have done, and and I think most people at, at points in time, you'll there will be situations that you do that might not be you know on top of of your wish list in terms of. Of the material involved or the art but but generally for me i feel like i've always uh been fairly selective about going with with what feels feels right rather than doing stuff for for commercial reasons and and uh, with the reasoning always being that if 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 i was in it for for financial reasons then i should do something something else something oh. easier <laughs> right um and and as far as my own writing and own music uh, is concerned, that I don't think I ever had a, a commercial plan to it or any expectation of it um, going anywhere necessarily. And uh, but then again, having having done this for for quite a while now, it's uh, to my surprise and 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 uh, luckily, I feel that. Um, all the projects that I've gone into, whether they're my own or other people's where I do it without, you know, without thinking about anything else but the music where it's based only on on the, the love for that music. Uh, those projects have a tendency to work out, you know, in my favor or other artists' favor also, you know, uh, commercially, um, because it seems like, that earnesty, uh earnestness or honesty also um translates well to to others
0: mm. can you give an example
1: uh i think the, the easiest example for for my own part is is my own music which i've been writing and, and releasing now for for a good 10 years which has uh, been incredibly well uh received yeah you know, both both nationally and 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 around globally as well, or at least in certain parts of the world, which is something that was, you know, I had no master plan, you know, no global takeover uh, uh, idea of, of what to do with this music, but but it seems to have um, found a life of its own and and made its way out into the world because there's sort of like-minded people out there. It's r
0: re- it's it's resonating with with cats but i just i would love you to talk a little bit about i mean so setting aside the construction of the tunes themselves um in this day and age where an artist has to wear eight different hats i mean they have <laughs> to be their own promoter and they have to uh you know it's very awkward in some cases because it takes away from just and that's one reason all the albums from a certain time period sound so good is because the musicians are basically like able to focus squarely on the art itself. You talking about disseminating stuff that has had some, you know, some relevance commercially, and it's putting people, people coming out to see it. Is there a way for you to talk about like, not that there was a blueprint in advance, but how you've gone about getting the music into people's ears enough so that you could go on a tour and, you know, get ahead and and make a little bit of dough.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, that's. Uh, I think. I mean, there's a there's a lot of. Uh, you. I mean, there's you can uh, you can go either way with with contemporary technology, but but the good good thing to me at least is that it's compared to twenty years ago or forty years ago, it's so much easier to get your music uh, out there in a in a global sense. Uh, and i also i also been lucky to to uh, have been on a, a danish record label um who have who are really good at at promoting their stuff and and you know getting it to the to the right people in terms of mostly in terms of you know music lovers rather than in in than thinking of of i totally records. get it so, no, i
0: want to be this is really important would you say so the the Danish record company um, because it was just, it's just funny because are, are the music are because I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in Europe in general, and it's a place I've I've not been to yet in my life. um, But it's astounding to me that many of the jazz clubs uh, in France and in Germany, they're all subsidized by the government. Um, and they're real gigs for the musicians, but are a lot of the music lovers that they get the music to actually guys that book for clubs?
1: Uh, Yes, they're definitely that too. Uh, and and I mean, there's like, like anywhere, there's a whole lot of different uh scenes, both regional and and uh, you know, within Europe itself, but there's when speaking of this kind of music, which is definitely more toward classical American jazz, uh, there's also a, a huge circuit of, of clubs and festivals and, uh, and a whole network throughout Europe. And especially in, in, in this part to up in, in Scandinavia.
0: I was curious about like, you have to excuse me because I'm just my friends that are, that are, that I see, go see their shows and stuff. I mean, they don't, it's just so hard to, for them, what's got, like you said, the cost of, with inflation and just the idea of like, it's become cost prohibitive to rent a bus and, you know, you have to kind of, at least in this country, I, I in, in fairness, if you're just sort of a road dog band, you kind of have to be on the road for two and a half to three weeks in order to make enough money at the merchandise table uh, to come home with any bread and i just wonder like do you are you somebody that when you're on tour um you know you make most of your money off merchandise or would you say that you make a decent money off the gig itself
1: it's definitely the the, uh, the major part of the income is from the gig itself wow that is, that's that is, that's the uh, exactly and and all my american colleagues who who come here to play there you know they're astonished every time and and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dude, i would uh,
0: love to see some of their expressions that is remarkable man that is re really beautiful i mean how it's that big it's that big a, it's that big a, a difference between because i mean there's they don't make i mean it's, it's not even you know jazz i mean just in general you know some concert of just sort of rock you know jam kind of music um and you look around, and there's hundreds of people there, and you know they're all buying drinks, and they're all buying beverages, and place is flowing, and the musicians are barely making any of the money, and it's crazy, yeah. you know. It's and there, and and it's like, uh, so you make most of your money off the gigs. Do you actually? Do you go around with your own merchandise, or, or I, I don't mean to get into the weeds here. It's just a, it's it, people are starving out uh, in the United States right now. There's no touring circuit right now. Maybe exactly. some fest- maybe some festivals in the summer, but like even big name acts like that, um, you know, they're only getting seven to nine days on the road, and uh, in the past you'd get two to three weeks and uh so basically like it, it's it's uh do you feel that at this point in your career snore that um you have to wear multiple hats or do you find that the danish record company is able to alleviate a lot of the promotion um and, and some of the stress of of the marketing side of it where you're able to really kind of focus on the art itself. And maybe the better question is what outside of your kids and your family, who you would like to spend time with, <laughs> what is the biggest distraction for you in terms of focusing on just the creation of this art itself?
1: Um, yeah, that's a good question too, man. I mean, the, the, biggest distraction is still that there's, I mean, that's, that's the, I would say that's the, uh, it's not really a downside, but it's a natural part of, of the whole system of a lot of government subsidized uh, funding and help for, you know, from everything from transportation to hotels. So there's a lot of paperwork, especially when you're when you're the the band leader or, or you're the one uh, running a project. Um, but but still compared to anywhere else in the world, it's it's, you know. It's a walk in the park. So, that's, <laughs> Wait, so that's you're, you're,
0: yeah. No, I, I love this. So you're just. It's a little bit cumbersome because you have to sort of keep track of all the the stuff that either the government will reimburse you for, or you know, like the the travel and stuff like that. Uh, your the hotels and the and the the trains and the planes or whatever things like that.
1: Exactly which is a total luxury man the, oh my I mean, god i mean this is like the
0: dream <laughs> coffee dude I, I this is so insane but so what does it mean so snore i need you to help me with this like at 45 years old you know like music to me I, it's just like this complete psycho psycho spiritual healing force in my life at this point point. and how do people in general um outside of like oh Um, you know, I hear a lot of people today, like they talk about, we're in a very much a, you can speak on this too, but in this country, it's younger cats for a variety of reasons. It's just huge chops driven time, huge facility, you know, sort of look at me, look at me. Uh, you know, they're playing, you know, circles around people and I find myself staring at the wall. It doesn't really feel very good because it's just (laughs) like people are wanking it. And so I hear a lot of people come out of concerts and say, oh, my God, he was so good, like his technique or his, you know, his performance. And I hate that word performance. So because I just feel like it's a spiritual communal experience. By and large, how does the government view the perform? I'm using that word, the creative arts. They basically say it's a necessity for life because they're treating you like professionals. And here in the States, a lot of bean counters look at it and say, oh, music is a musician's gift to the world. And so I I wonder about the. I just wonder about if you could talk a little bit about that mentality of believing that what you do is a viable profession in this in this world
1: well it's it's uh, yeah it's in every way it's definitely easier to to believe in that uh when you're when you're in this part of the world and and yes it's definitely a part of uh, uh of the s- structure of of society here that's that being whether it's a musician or you know a, a painter or an artist in 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 any way that is an actual profession and and something to be to be respected as such and and something that's important for uh, uh. um for society but with that being said it's uh, it's also you know it's still the the uh the uh, eternal political scapegoat you know whenever whenever you need to make a political statement that's where you go and cut fundings and uh, and uh, do stuff that's in the in the uh, the arts and crafts and uh, and that kind of thing really okay so, 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 so but i mean
0: they still it still never gets to a point though where i don't know like for a long time in this country you go back in the united states 60 70 years it's a long time but you had carpenters in the 50s in the 60s hard car- blue collar jobs they were not making that much. There wasn't a huge differential in in salary between them and people like doctors and lawyers. And all of a sudden things started to get wider and wider. And obviously there are plenty of people that are very wealthy in different industries that love and care about music, but it's like, it's like, uh, it's really, I just, I, I, to me, like it's, this is fascinating. And I, I, uh, it never gets to the point with you guys though, where it's like they're gonna cut all like everything that you know uh that you that you've counted on in terms of travel and compensation. it never gets to the point where they're like we're cutting it all.
1: it no, never gets ne- there never never there i mean there's yearly yearly cuts and and uh, compared to you know twenty thirty years ago it's it's uh definitely harder now than it used to be but but then again it used to be you know the uh like some kind of utopia for artists <laughs> or artists dude i'm not
0: <laughs> sure like i gotta be honest like there were i mean i have great stories from uh i, I know you're aware of the Mahavishnu orchestra with john mclaughlin yes. so my dear late friend rick lair the bass player did a few interviews with him and uh he, so, I mean, you could talk about the utopia. He talked about being on tour with Joe Henderson. And again, they're playing black American, you know, classical music, taking these trains uh, from Swe- in Sweden or where, you know, they were in, you know, going through like blizzards and then they'd wound up at some sort of, you know, brothel or prostitution house. And they're playing <laughs> jam sessions while there are people that are, you know, having, you know, a good time in the room next door, you know, it was not like the, like this sort of highbrow society thing. I mean, you know, I think it was, it was in in your mind, can you talk a little bit about a Snorkirk with your own music? What does a tour look like? Meaning, uh, how long do you go on the road for Uh, like, are you playing traditional jazz venues or, or are they coffee houses? Uh, or are they just you know rock clubs? Uh, I'm always curious um, about you know the idea of even colleges. I mean, do you have access to college? so much of so much great music used to be able to be played on the uh, you know uh, some you know college radio stations and or just the the, the gyms? And st- it's almost hard to believe, but you know that's where I grew up in Stony Brook, Long Island. I mean, I think in 1971 they had about hundred and fifty concerts there in this twenty five hundred seat gym, everyone from Jethro Tull to the Grateful Dead to Mahavishnu Orchestra was insane. And yeah. uh you know, it's just like it was just everywhere. And I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about how long your tours are and generally like have they tried to pigeonhole Snor Kirk as it relates to oh he's a jazz player you know, put him in the jazz clubs. Or have you tried to become sort of an omnivore and You know, because to me as a a journalist, I mean, what was very touching when you wrote out, wrote to me just about the fact that you had done a deep dive into my podcasts is that when I started my show, I was doing a lot of the, you know, I I was attached to a lot of these beautiful jazz musicians like Pat Martino and all these cats. And I was and they were all of a sudden I was being talked about as a jazz journalist. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I I do not (laughs) want to, I'm going to go. So I went hard into bluegrass and I went hard into soul and the studio scene because I don't want to get pigeonholed and I just wonder about you like do you feel like you've tried to do that delicate dance of uh of not getting branded
1: (laughs) yeah I mean uh I I think for me personally I have because my I mean my musical tastes are very diverse uh and I, I remember when I started Writing my own music and uh, and and making recordings and releasing albums. I remember I can't even remember who, but somebody told me that, man, you you got to watch out because once you release something, then people will tell you that's what you are. That's everything you are. <laughs> you no, know? and that is <laughs> exactly, dude. That is so true. Yeah, it is. Uh, but but then again, uh, I feel like there's definitely a uh, some kind of, a, I mean, my my albums or my releases or the music I play and and write is, is pretty cohesive as a whole. So it's, it's, uh, I mean, I have been pigeonholed as a jazz artist and, and, uh, which is a good thing. And, and especially in, 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 in this part of of Europe, this is, I mean, uh, you know, every, every festival we play, every club we play, we're, we're kind of the, you know, we're the avant-garde band because we play, you know, swinging American-based music, which is not the main thing being played over here these days.
0: Well, okay, let's just stop so right in... there. This is so important. <laughs> okay, so what is being played? What is popular? I hate to say that. What is the trendy melodic improvisation or jazz that is being played there?
1: Well, I mean, I mean to be to be fair, I think... Most yeah, no,
0: no, no, no judgment. It, I just, I want to, no. <laughs> I want to, I want to, I want to juxtapose it to this avant garde when, you know, that word immediately. Anyway, go ahead. What, what, what is, what is, <laughs> what is the, what is the uh, trendy, the trends today where you are at? And, 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 and how are you, you know, so not bucking those trends, but you, know, cause I think it's really, I think the thing is not to get too complex here, but it's like, you know, the minute somebody says, be careful because once you come out with something, that's what you are. And then subconsciously or even consciously, a lot of artists will then try to tie themselves in knots to be some kind of like, you know, total, uh, uh you know, just like, uh, <laughs> they'll do they'll, they'll go out of their way to try to be as diverse as possible. And the music won't sound that good with you. And your compositions, I feel like it's just kind of coming through you naturally. Is that fair?
1: That is absolutely fair. See, I,
0: I knew it. I, I love that. So it's not. This is not a painful exercise. But going back no. to the first, going back <laughs> to the first, uh, because like you know what I'm talking about. People get in their heads. They're like, I got to do something a little bit different. Like, I'm getting pigeonholed as this. But then they wind up, you know, sort of. It's different than when it's just a natural, organic thing. But exactly. how would you? How would you describe? Is it? Is it a facility based? riffology course these days where in jazz uh the trendy stuff uh explain what you feel is sort of mainstream where you're at in in your in that in that part of the
1: world well well uh it's it's a bit of uh it's a very multifaceted thing because most most of the clubs up here because they are being uh subsidized by the government they they are uh Forced to in in a good way to you know to keep their programming fairly uh, varied to be sure to be eligible sure. for for support of all kinds of sorts. But then again, at the same time, the I think the the, the popular sound of of the day is uh, is definitely leaning more towards some kind of postmodern, slightly electronic. You know, I I I've, I usually say to me, it's it's. Uh, You know, it's the same kind of thing that you will also, it it will work equally well at a contemporary classical music festival, and it will also work equally well at a a major, you know, pop industry festival. It's that kind of, it's very commercial, very lo-fi, electronic. Oh my, wait a minute. You're talking about a lot of this stuff.
0: Kind of like uh, almost music made for pacification. Very, very smooth kind of thing.
1: Yes, exactly. I don't want to say smooth jazz. It's not. I mean,
0: (laughs) it's just. It's very like. It's like almost like music that it's made for being talked over, kind of thing.
1: Exactly. That's. uh, I would. I would say that's the, uh, that's the big big thing right now. But I mean, ten years ago it was something else, and twenty years ago it was you know, so it 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 changes, uh, very often, or maybe more often here than than, uh, than in other parts of the world. I'm not sure, but uh, but that's that's been the thing for. uh, or four to five good years i would say
0: so let's talk about snore kirk's musical point of view how do you stay away from music that is made for pacification and you are looking for more introspection and burning to me there are subtleties some of it's just being acoustic based music uh some of that is just consistently breaking up time and form uh you know sort of leaving the head of the tune uh collectively and you know at that point it could be any tune uh, you go out and come back in you know some people would say oh they don't have people don't have the attention spans for that stuff but i just wonder within your compositions what do you do so that it's not totally it's not academic but at the same time It's also, it just it cuts that fine line between, you know, being adhering to the traditions of the music, but yet not making it so much so sanitized that it's just there's no feeling to it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's, and that's a that's a hard balance too. I mean, and and. uh... And I think any 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 artist would have, would say the same that also that any kind of recording process is also so much uh, uh, it's such a you know a still life of how things were that day you know good or bad <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and in reality I think you know the ideal thing would be to release live records because you know that that's always real in a way to me at least with with absolutely I agree with
0: you one hundred percent. 100%. But in terms of the structures of tune, like when they're like, oh, Snores here, it's going to be a J. I mean, because to me, do you, do you have, I mean, not that it's happened because you have a good, good reputation, but like if you get too free, if you get too experimental or too insanely burning, or all of a sudden you're like blackballed, they're like, oh, he, he doesn't, he's not fitting into the, to this, to what the club, to what the government needs. It is, does it ever get to that point? You get sort of become a black sheep of the touring circuit?
1: <laughs> no, I, I <laughs> you know, I, I would actually guess that it would be the opposite way around. Uh-huh. You know? I think, I think for, for, uh, for, you know, for the reviewers and the, the uh, opinion makers, they would love for me to, to break out and play something less, you know, if if anything, I'm, I'm often, uh, you know, or it's often made a point of that. It's very, uh, casual or you know, easy going in a way, which is not intentional. It's it's never been something that I tried to seek out as such. It's, I think it's a question of both temperament and, as you said, also you know, uh, talking about Hampton horse and then you know, it's a different it's a different life, and I've it's it's a very privileged life uh, to live in this part of the world. So I you know, there's not this it's struggle is not the same and you don't ah. have to fight for it in the same way and and naturally that reflects in the music too I, I would guess
0: i would think i mean how many gigs a year do you think you play
1: uh i think with with my own groups i think we average around 80 to 100 gigs a year or i've done that for the past four or five years and then uh,
0: that doesn't include other gigs that you pick up along the way
1: No, exactly. So I think in total it's probably around 150, 180 shows a year.
0: Incredible. And that was, did that go down considerably during the pandemic or or has that sort of always just continued to be, or has it come back since the pandemic or what was that about? Because I mean, essentially down here, because everything's so bottom line based and quite frankly, this is again, as it relates to spiritual music and live music just because the clubs were subsidized in in europe um there wasn't this pressure i mean basically so many bars and so many independent clubs here had to be bailed out by the government so they obviously have to pay back all that money and and so the the bars here are still broke and they're basically not really able to pay the musicians any money right now which is why there's no touring circuit And, uh, well, one of the reasons, um, was even in the pandemic, how did you, uh, was there still an outlet for you outside of the, 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 the virtual concerts, uh, was there still a live activity going on? How did you deal with that, that time of, because it was unprecedented and the, the people that seemed to take the hardest hits were live musicians, (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's so true
0: and i, I mean, and i don't want i don't want to make light of the fact that there was and i've lost people too i mean it was a very devastating time especially that first wave but you know again you know the people that lost out in this country were you know the the, the road dog so to speak you know, anyway, yeah anyway you can riff on that any way you want
1: yeah i mean i think denmark was uh was one of the one of the first countries to 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 do the complete shutdown and also one of the ones to do it the longest. So we had, I think in total, we had around about a, a full year where everything was closed, you know, no gigs, no nothing. Uh, and then we had brief periods, you know, between uh, outbursts of uh, or outbreaks of, of, uh, of covid right, where right. where clubs clubs would be open with some kind of minimum capacity or with very strict regulations so it all in all i think we had we had two years where everybody was either out out of work or or working under very strange conditions and we and, and i mean on the on the good side we i think we we saved a lot of people that way because this, yes. this was this was, uh, I mean, not only for music, but everything, you know.
0: It wasn't but, like there was like this like huge backlash to being like, you're infringing on my freedom because you're locking us down. Everybody kind of got on the same. They were basically rowing in the same direction in Denmark.
1: Yes, more, more or less. I mean, you yeah. will always have people. Sure. But in this country, in it was much,
0: like way out of control.
1: Yeah. No, in the United States,
0: it was out of hand, you know.
1: Yeah, the, the general consensus was that it was... This is what we're going to do as a as a whole, and it it worked out really well because we were also one of the first uh, first countries to do a a full reopening, we, you know, without having to go back and forth too much, at least.
0: How long? So is, this is fascinating. So I didn't even um. You have to excuse me again, just being in my bubble. I wasn't following the other things, other countries in the world. You say after when was the full? You didn't have like you you never had to you never opened and had to shut down again once you reopened you were good to go
1: no we we had some some uh some brief reopenings and then had to shut down again yeah. but but uh but eventually uh once the once the decision was was uh, taken to to do a complete reopening you know without restrictions of any any sort then then i think we were ready for that and and uh, we've been open since um, but that being said, there was still—I mean, not in comparison to to the United States, but still a lot of small venues, small clubs, and also musicians that you know went out of business totally and didn't come back. But but overall, th- there was a lot of uh, a, a lot of governmental funding and help for uh, for everybody, you know, regardless of profession. that and, and uh, that's remarkable. Once there. again.
0: That is, yeah. remo- that is, it's actually totally inspiring uh, to me, to hear that, uh, because I've just been so uh, disenchanted uh, with, especially where we're at right in this minute. Somehow, though, <clears throat> you guys seem to got get it right. Um, can you talk about a, a piece that, you know, the germ of, of a tune for you? Like, essentially, you know, like, is it something like, that'll just flow, you know, fall out of you in one full swoop. Will it come in <laughs> different times of, uh, of inspiration or, uh, you know, how, how does, how does a tune sort of coalesce for Snor Kirk
1: <laughs> in, in, uh, 6,000 different, you know, both <laughs> yeah. easy and, and painful ways, you know, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it'll, it'll come out in, in one piece. Like I never wrote it, you know, it's just like, here it is. Right. right. Uh other times I will I will work on stuff forever and and uh, either have to <laughs> have to give up or or it works out and then other times I will I will work really hard on something that's not working out and you know through frustrations some other piece will you know appear from that so it's uh, it's it's a lot of <laughs> yeah a lot of ways to the to the finishing line for that.
0: Um When you talk, so there's just a conceptual thing that I'd like to talk to you about, and was sort of alluding to it earlier, is um you know, a lot of a lot of bands you'll hear people talk about, you know, that the rhythm section, especially, you know, they want to know where one is, they want to know where the downbeat is, you know, and they're they're they'll say things like. where's the one, you know, where's the one and, and guys like, you know, James Jamerson uh, used to get really frustrated by that because he would be like, any note can be the one, Uh, especially if you're in a a, a situation where there's a lot of trust on the bandstand and, you know, you could play a tune like a great standard, but then collectively the conversation goes out and you lose where the one is. And then part of the joy of music is sort of collectively within the group conversation, all sensing where that one is and coming back in spontaneously. on And, uh, and, you know, to me, a lot of the psychedelic bands in the sixties did that a lot in this country, but in jazz, it also is very much like, um, well, it's just a feeling. So I wanted to ask the, your the Snorkirk philosophy on the idea that, especially as a drummer, that any note can be the one.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and and from every instrument too, and and for me, I always I love when that happens. Not that it, it doesn't happen. See, often, you're right. I know. I, I have this fantasy <laughs>
0: that I, I want it to happen every time, but I know it doesn't. It's not like that.
1: Exactly. I mean, there's there's, yeah some of the most magical moments can be from, you know, confusion or. or uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, mis- Getting mis- lost. Misinformation. Yeah. Exactly. There was a, there was a, a release that was released uh, on the Storyville label a couple of years ago about Duke Ellington's orchestra playing in, in Rotterdam uh, where there's been some kind of, you know, misunderstanding with the repertoire. So, half of the orchestra starts playing C Jam Blues and the other half starts playing Take the A Train oh my and gosh and they're in the they're in the same <laughs> same key and they they keep going for a good you know minute and a half or something total pandemonium and it's beautiful i love it <laughs> you know you couldn't you couldn't make that up you when you when you was, uh...
0: when you you know i mean that's a great example i mean even in your own how did you sometimes coming up not even just your parents were classical musicians but you know there's a right way especially in classical music i mean you're there's a right way and a wrong way to 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 play a piece how did you learn to realize that imperfection is perfection is there a story that you can talk about where you you know things kind of fell apart on the bandstand for you but yet it was something it was a time where you were like oh man i'm able to sit in the mess and surrender, and realize, like, actually, this is really what it's all about.
1: Exactly. I mean, I've I've been lucky enough to have some uh, some some fantastic, you know, teachers and and mentors through through the years, and and one who was really, really meant a lot to me was it was the late great uh, Ed Thigpen, who who lived whoa, here in um, Co- whoa, Copenhagen. Whoa, whoa, for... whoa,
0: whoa, whoa! He lived there.
1: He lived there for a good uh, forty years, from uh, from the seventies Okay, please he, just break that test. down
0: immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the thing. That dude is, oh, wow. Go ahead, man. How, talk about him.
1: He was, uh, yeah, fantastic human being, amazing drummer, one of one of the real you know legends. Uh, totally, totally. And and uh, yeah, he he jumped off. Like, and I can't remember with who it was. It was. After the, the that incarnation of the Oscar Peterson Trio uh, dissolved, he was on tour with somebody else in uh, in Europe, and he decided to to jump ship and uh, and settle in uh, in Copenhagen, and uh, married and had kids here and lived here up until his death in uh, yeah two thousand and ten, I would say. Um, and and he he was a uh, you know a, a really. Great teacher, as well, he was very generous with his with his time and with his information and and in terms of when when talking about you know dealing with imperfections or you know with things happening he would he would always you know have um uh, great advice you know you know but he came from that older school where it was you know small short sentences with a lot of information he would say you know you're playing jazz drums, you know. Nobody's nobody's gonna die if you mess up, you know. <laughs> you're not a soldier. Dude, this
0: is, yeah, I mean, it's those very guys, deep. You know, it's just so funny that. Uh, first of all, did he go on tour with Ella Fitzgerald after Oscar? Is that what got him to Copenhagen?
1: Uh, might be. I know he yeah. toured with with uh, with Ella, uh, but but I'm not sure if that was before or. He said, "You know, things,
0: because be he, he he left he left Peterson." And then he recorded this album as a leader that I've, I've had before, and I don't have it in my collection right now, called Out of the Storm uh, on Verve in 66, and then he went on tour with Ella from 67 to 72, and then in 72 he moved to Copenhagen.
1: Exactly. Huh? Then, it's, then it might have been with Ella he, that he was here. Yeah, so
0: then he's just looking at Kenny, play with Kenny Drew, Ernie Wilkins, Thad Jones, Sven Asmussen, all these amazing <laughs> Danish cats, Niles Henninghorst and Peterson uh i gotta be honest with you i mean that is so beautiful i mean did you actually take uh lessons from him or what was a lesson or were you just sort of somebody who would just sort of watch and and observe and 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 soak up what was going on on the bandstand
1: Uh, well there was uh, definitely both uh but but i was fortunate enough to have uh, quite a few lessons you know one-on-one with him uh when I was still fairly uh, fairly early on in my in my development, when I was around twenty twenty one years old, um, and and it was yeah it was great. And you know, a lot of the things that he told me back then, you know, he he wasn't forcing anything on me. And uh, and even to this day, you know, every now and then I will I will have these <laughs> these moments of of clarity. It was like, oh, that's what he meant twenty years ago. Uh, you, you, can so, you can
0: you can you give me one ex i would love one ex i love those like you know moments of enlightenment post you know when the actual event happens but it comes back and hits you later,
1: yeah, it was mainly you know small things concerning you know the technical stuff with the uh, with the uh, with the drums in terms of both in terms of playing you know how how the the swing beat is constructed and also straightly physical stuff you know of finger placement on the stick itself and and how to make things uh, sound a certain way and and uh, and i would do my best and sometimes you know being 20 years old and and uh, young and stupid sometimes i would also said yeah you know i don't i don't need that I, i'll work something out and then but then you know he was a patient man so he somewhere i think he he knew that eventually if i kept working at it i would i would get it <laughs> along the way
0: and maybe um and maybe come up come up with a, an answer on your own, right? As opposed Let's to do. like having to comp. Um th- this is I just want to read you this quote because this this I mean uh this is, has just this just speaks volumes. Uh this is from an interview I did with a a really great drummer, Ed Sof. He said, um I would read books about how Kenny Clark Kluke, was the first was the first drummer to quit playing four on the floor and use it like he would uh, and use it like he would his left hand to play non-repetitive comping figures. I could never really figure out what he was doing until I met Ed Thigpen. He had seen Kenny Clark live. One day we were talking and he said, one thing that really makes me angry is these guys who write these jazz history books and come out with these ridiculous statements. The one that kills me is that Kenny Clark revolutionized jazz because revolutionized jazz drumming because he quit playing the bass drum on all four beats. That is absolutely false. He played soft four on the floor and accented within that same way Max Roach did, same way Blakey did. Um, Anyway, it's just one of those things where I was going around and like, you know, it's always this sort of, you know, these little rumors or the these little flashes on history. Kenny Clark revolutionized jazz drumming because he quit playing full on the floor when, in fact, he was just feathering. Uh, And and you needed somebody like Ed Ed Thigpen who was actually in the crowd or sitting there watching him to break that down. Uh, These guys were, like, beyond genius. You know, I mean, to me, and so much of, and I just wonder, um, so much of The drummers, Elvin and Philly Joe, Max Roach, Mickey Roker, all these guys, um, it was really an accompanist instrument. And the the drummer drives the band, and the drummer is the leader of the band, whether people want to recognize that or not. But, um, you know, that ability for the drummer to play melodically um, and to be able to you know, for everybody to have their own inner time feel so that the rhythm section can be freed up to play melodically. I just feel like that's the magic of jazz, and that was the magic of that time period. And I just wonder, in in Snore Kirk, I mean, in, in your own sort of mind's eye, <clears throat> granted you've done, you've had a, you're doing quite well uh, being able to sing for your supper as a as a leader, as a musician, but what is one area... Uh, you know, professionally, musically, or on the kit, where you know you need to push yourself out of your comfort zone in order to grow.
1: Man, I, I just, uh, just a quick, you know, I love that you ask these questions. Nobody <laughs> ever asked these questions. <laughs> no, no, that's the, is, uh... yeah. No,
0: I believe, dude, it, it warmed my heart because I, you know, my peers here in the states love me and they get it. But man, I, I I'm I'm still so much. There's so much more potential to grow, and for you to, uh, for you to recognize that is is b- very very meaningful.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, in in general, I think for me at least, I would probably, I would, oh no, not probably. I would definitely benefit from you know getting out of my comfort zone in in every way. Uh, which, which is, uh, <laughs> yeah mean, right. I get it. Yeah, which is uh, you know, as as I was mentioning earlier too, that th- that's that's the downside of of living in the most comfortable part of the world, probably in you know, for at least for from a musician's point of view. Um, oh. But but if if I'm being more you know specific, I know for my own part that uh, something I, I've been wanting to delve deeper into for for quite a while is is feeling um more comfortable or more uh, like myself as a soloist uh because i've yeah. spent i spent a, I spend a re- really really spent a lot of time which i'm which i'm uh, uh i'm glad i have done you know just working on on the on being you know being an accompanist first and foremost because that's you know i i love that and and uh and I feel that I've gotten to a point where I feel fairly comfortable in in uh, in that, or I feel like I know where I I want to go with that and how to do that. Um, but but if, you know, developing as a as a soloist that's a whole nother thing. And and for me personally, I, I feel that that's something that really needs work and time and uh, uh, and time for me to find you know something to say. The instrument,
0: yeah, like kind of like telling a story, right? With even if it's a short story, just saying something that has some kind of some sort of you know value when you're soloing, as opposed to just you know bashing away, yeah. Exactly. No, you just said it's so interesting, and this just ties in perfectly to what we've been talking about is that this country is so cutthroat in the United States that you're constantly, as a musician, having to push yourself out of your comfort zone if you just want to survive, and for you. It's very comfortable, which doesn't necessarily lend itself to pushing yourself out of your comfort zone because everything's kind of okay.
1: Exactly. You, you know, know.
0: <laughs> so then growth can kind of get stunted a little bit. It's a fine line. And uh, snor are you? Do you have any? Do you ever get over to the United States to play?
1: Not, not to do uh, shows. No, I mean I've been to the United States uh, a lot uh, to you know, just to soak up music and and uh, visit friends through the years, but. But especially uh, during the the latest uh, or the <laughs> previous administ- administration in the yeah in, in the United States, it's it's gotten even harder, you know, to get working permits, and and it's it's become so expensive just to you know uh, just to play just to play one or two or five gigs is is is, uh, is going to cost you. It's you it's know, cost
0: prohibitive. No, I, it's I, I it's on. It, it, this is very. I was going to say, man, like, uh, I would please let me know when you are going to come, even if it's just for leisure. Uh, it would be absolutely an honor to connect with you in person, go see some tunes and, uh, best case scenario, you, you know, man, like, cause, cause I realized that, um, you know, the cats that I've been focused on laser focused on for 12 years, uh, they might have, they might live or have lived in the states, but <clears throat> like Ed Thigpen or Billy Cobham or Kenny Clark or Lester Young or Eric Dolphy, and the list goes on and on. Johnny Griffin, all those cats knew that their genius was going to get recognized in Europe, and I know that for my show to continue to keep growing in a very slow but organic way my tentacles have to keep getting out into places where the cats that I've interviewed, um, are genuinely appreciated for their artistry and their genius. So well, you know, the, I'm just, I, I'm psyched that slowly but surely, you know, like Snor Kirk got hip to my show, man. Like it's, it's, it to me, like, that's the, the international Jake Feinberg show is where I have to grow, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and before I let you go, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about, um, what has been has been inspiring for you about um, just b- discovering my show and going down the rabbit hole? Aside from being able to kill an hour or two a day, just going through and listening to whoever you want, uh, what is it about the interviews that that keep you wanting to come back for more?
1: Man, well, that, this will be a long answer. So I hope you make Oh, I'm ready. Me. I'm, I'm <laughs> ready, man.
0: I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna cut you off
1: no I mean but first and, most, first and foremost first you know going going back to what i uh commented on earlier the just just the fact that you know these are questions about actual questions about the music you know, and so much or at least in in my experience so much music journalism is about other stuff you know or things that are irrelevant irrelevant to to the to the artist or to to the audience or to anybody in a way um and, uh, and and
0: let me just be clear, that's because most journalists are being paid by some company and the company's telling them what questions to ask. So it's it's very lame, it's very lame. It doesn't go anywhere, you know? It's just exactly. safe or just ask about the latest release, but nothing tangible, you know. And so luckily, you know, go ahead, continue.
1: No, exactly. And I mean uh I mean I I discovered your podcasts this is about a, a month ago I think or something like that and and been I've been going through a lot of it already and and just seeing you know even with uh, with artists who I have that I have been reading about you know reading interviews with in magazines you know growing up reading drummer magazines for instance um uh, you know you you get places with someone like Jim Keltner when I heard that that episode that oh my you know God stuff stuff that i've never heard before and i've I've you know read the first 10 or 15 interviews with him and it's always the same questions which also subsequently creates the same answers every time you know, I mean, <laughs> wait just, so you know he, you
0: know i've done eight interviews with him
1: i know yeah yeah no i'm saying like it's different you know
0: it's just every <laughs> dude the man is just yeah so you i'm asking questions and revealing new history that avid Fans or musicians themselves have not read about or, or
1: heard exactly, before. and and getting these, you know, these legends to to talk because you can also really tell that people, you know, they they want to talk because it makes sense to, you know, to open up and and go into detail when it's when it's, it's uh, yeah, resonating in in a good way, and and also I really I really love this uh, this mix or at least to me, I would see is that, that you know, it's, it's both the, both the, the huge stars, you know, maybe not huge commercial stars. If you, if you ask, you know, the first 10 people on any street they won't know who Ama Jamal or Jim Keltner are, you know, to me, they yeah. are huge, but, but even to go, I mean, there's so many names in these interviews that I never heard about. And I know with each of these persons, there's a, you know, a universe opening oh up of, God, of music dude. and things happening. Um, and, and for me personally, I, I, I stumbled across your podcast because I was, you know, I was rabbit-holing into Harold Jones who there's so little information about.
0: Oh my, anyway. dude. it's This is making my day, dude. I cannot but, first of all, dude, I'm so glad you went down the Harold Jones rabbit hole. He is the most modest, mellow cat and absolute stone Genius. So yeah, you stumbled on those interviews, and there you go.
1: Exactly, and I mean, as as uh, as we kind of discussed earlier, too. You know, the when 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 talking about this, the, the feathering truth from Ed Thigpen and stuff like right, this. Right, I right, right. so so most of these things can't be be uh, you know you can't find them in the book, and and you need to you need need to get that information from from the source. And and for for someone like me who's living here, you know, going to seek out or find a Harold Jones or, or you know someone else from that generation living uh, in in the United States, that's you know it's not an easy task. <laughs> it would require you know uh, a whole deal. So so being able to you know hear get this kind of information from from the source itself through these questions and you know learn some more. That's it's yeah. Invaluable to me.
0: Snor, I love you deeply, man. You've really made my day. You you sent me to a higher vibration. I'm just curious, are you tight with any of the elder Danish music jazz musicians? Uh because I am you know, like I don't know if you've listened like Francois rabat I've done a great interview with him and Jean-Luc Ponty and Jan Ham, or all these guys that from overseas, you know, but I haven't really tapped into the Danish cats. I mean, are you tight with any of those older cats?
1: Uh, some of them, absolutely yes. Uh, <laughs> there's I mean, the the few ones that are are left. Well, what I'm saying yes. is, I
0: want you to think about someone that has, um, you know, a decent, uh, you know, uh, con- command of English, but also somebody that you think would be a good interview because I, I just I want to keep getting to the to the shaman cat, to the elder cat. So I just, I, you know, because we we'll definitely do set two, but I, I want to, I have to keep growing myself. So if you think about somebody that, because there's not you're right, there are not that many left. I mean, Roy Haynes is still swinging his ass off at 97. I, I it's insane.
1: <laughs> He'll Ron still old. killing
0: yeah. it, man. You know, it's unreal. Uh Music keeps you young, but you know, I still want to get to all the cats. So if you think about anybody that might be a good fit, you know, let me know.
1: I will I will do that. I'm I'm sure there are some.
0: Yeah, man. And uh much love to you, Snor and your family, man. It was so beautiful to connect with you and uh I look forward to further collaboration uh down the road, baby.
1: Man, thank you. The same to you. Love lovely to be here, man.
0: Hey man. Much love. Have a beautiful day and we'll talk soon.
1: Absolutely. Take care, right. man.
0: Cheers, brother. Bye.